Hey everyone, Alex here with a quick note. Just wanted to let you know this might get a little spoilery for other Mike Flanagan properties, including The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and Midnight Mass. Please go watch those. Don't be spoiled. You really need to watch those. Don't let us spoil it for you here. It's not worth it. Turn back. Thanks. Are we ready? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I don't know how you want to intro it. I assume this this will end up on the film nerds as well as <laughs> theoretically, yeah, our, I guess it could. The normal feed. All right, I have an intro. Watch this. These are my confessions. Just when I thought I'd say all I can say, my chick on the side says she got one on the way. These are my confessions. Man, I'm thrown and I don't know what to do. Welcome to Confessions, a podcast about Usher. I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Nick. We're here today to talk about Usher. That's right. The fall of the House of Usher, not Usher. <laughs> Rod, Rod Usher. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, John. I don't think, like, I had listened to Burn. And I was like, I don't, this isn't the most well-known Usher song to me. It's, but that's because it came out after Yeah. Which <laughs> any song that comes out after Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was on be... this, it was on the same album as Yeah, yes. I think. Yes. So, and, but it, to me, it, it's such a nostalgic song, Burn specifically, just because, um, like the relationship I was in at the time and like all of that nonsense and, yeah, I just like that song. It it, it, oh, I, I let it, I burned it hard. Like <laughs> I straight up Devil's Night arson fired that shit like this, like tonight because it's Devil's Night right now. It is. Speaking of the crow, hail uh, Satan! If you're not from uh, Metro Detroit and you don't know what Devil's Night is or it goes by another name, please write in. Watch the know. crow. Just watch the crow. Just watch the crow. Yeah, or the wind cut. So, The Fall of the House of Usher, as we spoke about last episode, is the latest television miniseries on Netflix by Mike Flanagan. It is an adaptation of many of the works of Edgar Allan Poe and the titular Fall of the House of Usher story from Edgar Allan Poe. And um, it's an eight-episode series available on Netflix now. I think we can all safely say you should watch it. We all enjoyed it very much. And uh, we're going to spoil pretty much anything from it as we talk about it going forward. But, uh, yeah, The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, yeah, like, are is anybody here a fan of Poe? Are there any Poe boys? on this call right now uh i've never like specifically sought out to read any poe but mm. there were points throughout my upbringing that poe was given to me to read around usually around halloween in like an english class or something like that mm-hmm. um specifically also I, I remember we had a substitute teacher in elementary school whose name was miss penciler and she would often bring in scary stories to like tell the kids to freak us all out. Um, she was everyone's favorite substitute teacher and she would read Poe to the kids too. Mm. Okay. Nick, are you a Poe boy? I have a healthy respect for Poe, but I definitely can't claim to be a 
an expert. Okay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the only thing that's Poe related that I can remember is getting um, passes to go see the Raven starring. Uh, oh, uh, what's his name? John Cusack. John Cusack. Yes. And that movie was bad. It was a bad <laughs> movie. Uh, I didn't enjoy it very much, even for Looked free. Bad. And there's uh, another Poe movie out now on Netflix with uh, Christian Bale, but he's not Poe. <laughs> he's uh, he's like a. a just to a be clear, cop. we're not we're not talking about the Teletubby, right? Like, <laughs> no, yeah, we are not. True. That'd yes. be. That's well, should, good, good to clarify. Is this an episode yeah. of Poe Boys, a Teletubbies podcast? <laughs> Talk about all the Poes. Poe Dameron, Poe the Teletubby, Edgar Allan Poe. All the Poes from Zelda, isn't that what they're called? Yes, they are Poe. Yeah, the, the ghosts. Yep. yep. Uh, the Pale Blue Eye is what you're speaking of on yeah. Netflix? Yep. Yes. Yeah, he play, I think he plays a cop, a detective that teams up with Poe or something like that. Augustus Landor uh, is yeah. who he plays. And then Harry Melling of uh uh of harry potter fame who plays dudley is poe there you go so uh check that out none of us have seen it uh so the fall of the house of usher (laughs) the only Um, poe the only poe story i really knew going into this like well was i i knew murders in the room morgue but i knew the telltale heart the most because that's the one that we read in school at one point when i was i think in middle school and it always stuck with me because the teacher like impressed upon us. He was like, guys, this was written over a hundred years ago, basically. You're like really had to impart how old that story was and how ahead of its time and how much it, it and, and Poe influenced kind of like Lovecraft. Like the two of them have always been those kind of godfathers of a lot of horror and kind of sci-fi elements, uh, definitely ahead of their time. So that's, that's one that I was really excited to see kind of come to life in this series. Yeah. And, and I guess that's something that I didn't notice going into the series was that each of the episodes was going to be a Poe story of some kind or based on a Poe story as, as well as kind of the overarching, um, fall of the house of Usher, which is also more of an, an allegory for like the Sackler family and the, um, Oxycontin, uh, opioid epidemic that has come Mm -hmm. from Oxycontin, um, which is obviously not, directly from the post story but um you know i guess nick how did you feel about the series as a whole and what it did with poe um and and how does it stand as a as a flanagan work to you you know i um i I liked it a lot i thought it was really 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 interesting constantly engaging i mean these are kind of the hallmarks of mike flanagan at this point i'm going to be pulled in immediately I'm going to be in awe of how much is going on and yet how steady and maintained and clear it all is. And also how every cast member manages to deliver like a show stopping career best performance consistently. I don't know how Mike Flanagan does it. It's, it's unreal. Uh, But the show going into it, I was, I was really interested in the ambition of it because I kind of knew it was loosely based on a lot of Poe, work and i didn't know how loosely that would be but i think in the end it is it is loose in that it's obviously adapted to our modern times and it's it's used as almost the kind of fabric to uh that makes up this larger story like you said about like an opioid epidemic also some modern kind of political social 
um, technology commentaries. But afterwards, I was just like thinking, I was just blown away. The more and more I thought about it, I was like, his mind is a really busy place. Like there's a, <laughs> there is, there is, he could have done a third of what he did in this and it still would have been really impressive. Like the fact that he's telling this, he's using this as like his springboard to tell sort of an original story or like an original take using all these existing characters and, and property and, but still kind of paying homage to Poe and the nature of his stories and how they worked and also tell something so relevant and yet weave this language taken directly from Poe, this very kind of archaic formal speaking and, and make it fit. It just, it blows my mind how, what he manages to pull off. I think it's just incredible. And the guy, I mean, he was, there was no, no doubt that he, was one of the modern masters of, of horror and would, you know, cement that legacy. But then this, I'm just watched this and I'm like, just blown away from the writing level. Like what, what kind of crazy flow chart he must have had to track everything that was going on and all the characters and what story they were coming from and making that story work within the context of this bigger story he's trying to tell. It's just wild. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned by it's almost more impressive than his original work in a way, because he manages to take this stuff and make it fit within what he wants to do. It's crazy. Crazy. I, I just think he's, he's such a talent. And as much as I loved it and am so impressed by it, it's funny because his, all of his work is that good that this is probably like number three for me. <laughs> it's yeah. nuts. No, I'm, I'm curious. We should, we should maybe circle back around to where we feel like we would rank it in, in his work. But, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, John, what did you think about the fall of the House of Usher as a Fanagan Flan again? Flan, Fan Flanagan fan? Yes, yes a, a um, Fan Flanagan so this this show i would i would call this this probably falls number three for me as well if we're ranking them um with hill house being number one for me personally uh midnight mass number two uh i still need to watch midnight club that's a whole other story but the this show uh, i really liked it it made me wish that i knew more poe going into it because I forgot about the whole Poe tie-ins until I really started paying attention to the titles of the episodes because I'm, I, I tend to not pay, like, I don't know if it's because it's, it's like words on a screen and I just ignore words, uh, just much like you ignore books. Yeah. Um, we can't read, but our, our family. Yeah. Also words, um, another form of words. <laughs> yeah. So like, I, I don't know if it's like, I just, I, I, it didn't, dawn on me that it was Poe related un until um shoot which episode did it click uh seven <laughs> no it was it was five it was the telltale <laughs> heart, heart one yeah. i was like i was like oh yeah okay that's this is Poe and then like i i uh you know you keep seeing this reference to verna and i'm like oh that's an anagram for raven and i'm like mm -hmm. that's clever like i really like that and then all these all the other little character tie-ins and things to like Poe and Poe's life and, and whatnot is very interesting. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it's a great show. It wasn't nearly as scary as I thought it was going to be. It's still terrifying in certain ways. Um, disturbing even dis disturbing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Some of the gore is pretty brutal, um, which I, I like. Um, I like the way Flanagan handles gore. 
because it's often um like it's not like it it it's kind of gratuitous in a way but it's never like it's you're never like I don't cringe at any of his gore like I do some other stuff um I I don't know I I don't know how to explain it necessarily but I just I like I just like the way he handles gore I think it's pretty solid um but yeah overall it doesn't feel uh if I can interject to me I I know I totally know what you're saying and to me it doesn't feel like exploit exploitative if that's kind of the right word yeah Yes. Like, I don't feel like I'm watching like a snuff movie when I see his gore, like a lot of right. modern, like it, I watch like a hostel. Like, it's, I mean, it's, they're aiming for it, different things, but yeah, it, it feels, it feels in, intentional, but not overbearing, you know? Well, like, there's, there's so much about it in this show where he's showing it to you before you know how it happened. So he's like kind of almost telegraphing to you like look at this horrible thing is going but, to but befall this person that's the thing is like that's that's all like it's it's like subtle foreshadowing because you're able to kind of figure it out if you if you you know if you're if you're one of those people that pauses and freeze frames and looks at the stuff like you can kind of suss out each of the deaths yeah in a certain way um which I think is really cool. It's it's him like telegraphing in to you as the viewer, like, hey, like, get ready, you know, get ready for this, but like, even, it's coming. Even in the sense of like, hey, get ready, you're gonna see something gruesome, rather than just like, oh, simply just, I'm going to, yeah, make you being squirm. being gross for the sake of being gross. Yeah. Like he doesn't do that. He he's he does gross stuff like to propel his story, and it and it works. And uh, yeah, I just um. It also helps that most of the characters in this show that gross things happen to, it's kind of their comeuppance. So you're kind of like, you, you don't some, feel like they're some, victims. Some, most, some of them. most. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, there are specific, I don't know how early we want to start diving into the, the spoilers of everything, but um, we gave our warning. Yeah, so whenever you feel the need to. Well, I just, in general, I mean, this should all be a huge spoiler cast in general, yeah. I feel like. Um, but yeah, like there, like, I, I made the mistake of listening to, um, that, what, what is, uh, David Chen's co- podcast TV. current? Yeah. Decoding TV when he's doing the streaming, he did a whole episode on, uh, on the whole series. He did an episode about House of Usher and I can't remember the, the, the woman's name who was his co-host, but it, uh, they, they kind of, they were all like, I, I didn't understand where they were coming from with a lot of their criticisms of things, but I do agree with their criticisms of some of the characters in terms of like who deserved their death and who didn't. <laughs> um, so, but uh, yeah, overall great story, cool music. Um, mm-hmm. it's shot really interestingly. Um, and just uh, again, uh, another killer performance from Carla Gugino. Gugino, I don't know how to pronounce her name. I always go Gugino. Um, it's uh, it's Gugino. I think I think it is Gugino. Gabagool. I I no I I I absolutely love her. She's great. Everything she's been in, including the like three or four episodes of uh uh what, what was this no. Not new girl. Shoot, why am I drawing a blank now? Uh, Vinny Chase, that show. Oh, uh, Entourage. Entourage. Yeah, Entourage. Yeah. <laughs> the handful of Vinny episodes. Chase, yeah, the Vinny, the Vinny Chase show. 
uh the handful i i just i'm a fan of i think she's great like in every role she plays she just kills it and when she plays these slightly psychopathic like but normal seeming seemingly normal people um she just she plays that uh duality very well um I liked how much fun she got to have in the show because it's so very like mustache twirly, like, uh, and and honest, like there there was I watched the show with Nicole and there were so many moments of like when you start noticing she's popping up as different people, I'm yeah. Like, that's that's the same girl that was in the bar and like Nicole's like I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know if you're right. And I'm like, trust me, I know when Carla Gugino is somewhere in a show. You're paying, yeah, we're paying <clears throat> attention. Yeah. But uh, no, like, it's. She, I, she gets to chew so much in the show, and it's just, it's beautiful to watch. Um, well, it's funny you say the mustache twirling thing because one of the things David Chen and his co host talked about was how there were points in the in the whole show where characters were doing this almost Vincent Price like delivery of their lines and things specifically uh, Roderick um, mm-hmm. who, who's played by Bruce Greenwood and I never quite got that from Roderick specifically but I definitely got that from Carla and I think like I liked her performance as Verna I thought it was it was awesome especially when she's like shifting like just being again being that like calm normal seemingly normal person who has this twist into being a slight psychopath um like when she's the security guard talking to camille and like she goes from being this like calm and like hey you shouldn't go in there you shouldn't go in there Mm -hmm. and then the next thing you know she's this like demonic monkey like experimental monkey lady (laughs) like you know like with glowing eyes in the dark or whatever like and yeah i just uh she she kills it man like everything i i've seen her and she kills it um big big fan um i don't i don't think that can be overstated how (laughs) how cool this role is and if somebody will complain about it somehow and say she's overacting (laughs) or something but like i genuinely i think it's it's an amazing performance because she has she runs almost the whole human spectrum of emotion in this show it's nuts and I mean, part of it is just her gift of, of being an actress, but part of it is how alluring looking she is. She can do so much with her face and you're like, kind of like you, like you want, you can't look away from her, but you want to, oh, she, you're afraid. She but you're has also... some of the most like emotive and evocative eyes. Like I've yeah. ever seen. Like she just, she says so much with just the slightest bit of expression. Just, just, you know, by twitching her eye, the slightest way or whatever, like a winker, you know, it, she, she just, she says so many things with such small movements and that's like, she's an incredible talent. Well, oh yeah. Like I, it, you can just compare her across all of the Flanagan works too, because like the yeah. warmth that you feel in Hill house versus, you know, the different personas that Verna has in this show. It's just, it's such a wide spectrum that she can, she has command of, depending on the material and depending on her performance it's just it's very incredible like my my wife constantly throughout the watching of this she's she's not one to like necessarily gush too much about how attractive a celebrity is or isn't um because she's usually just like oh yeah i I either like them or i don't she never really delves into it much but with carla gugina every episode she was like why have i not seen her 
constantly in everything for the last 15 years. She was like, she's so un- indescribably beautiful and so talented. And I was like, yeah, I agree. And I was like, unless you've been watching Spy Kids, you're <laughs> asking yourself the same question. But Flanagan, <laughs> Flanagan just knows, man. He's been throwing down with her for a long time and it's awesome. Like yes. he just yeah. is going to keep. And I, I love, I said this, I think on our last episode, we were kind of talking about this, how it, it reminds me of like Wes Anderson, but horror movies, how he's got his crew and he keeps kind of picking up people here and there. But as soon as you hear so-and-so has been cast, you're like, yeah, told that completely yep. meshes. And that was Mark Hamill. When I heard Mark Hamill was going to be this season, I was like, perfect. He'll use him. He'll be great. I don't know what the hell he's going to be doing. I don't know what his part's going to be, but I'm sure he's going to be phenomenal. And he was, he was actually probably my favorite performance of the whole this whole series, I think Carla's is the best. She's kind of the Hamish Linklater of this one, uh, just quarterbacking it and locking it down. But man, Hamill, anytime Hamill's on screen, I was like, he's the most interesting thing going on. He does. He, he almost does needs. To, he needs a whole show just about that character. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it would be awesome to watch him. See, that's like, the do, temptation, but it would take away from. A, I think it would take Steve. away from what makes him so cool. Yeah. Because okay. Even even at the if we're gonna get into spoilers, I guess we'll. Yeah. Get right in. Uh, in the last, his last, I said in the Discord before, I think you two were done with the series. I said he, his final big scene in the whole series is probably my favorite scene in the whole show. And it was when he's, when she sits down in the chair opposite her and he's kind of talking. And she starts to talk about his past and she just kind of drops those little tidbits. And I 100% was prepared to see a shot of young him either seeing her or young him and doing his whatever. But it never does that. It just stays on his face and his face tells you everything you need to know. And it's just such an impressive exercise in restraint. And also Flanagan being like, probably a, I don't have the money to do this anyway, but B just let a great actor do his thing and just get out of the way and let the people do, do the, do the thing. And it's just, uh, I'm just so impressed by that because I feel like a lesser creative would be like, I have to show this or, and part of me wants to see it. Like I wanted to see a shot of young Mark Hamill on a boat on the Arctic and seeing her (laughs) standing there on the ice. Like that would have been cool, but I got to visualize it the way you would, if you're reading a post story, you don't get to see it. You have to read it. You have to, you see the text and that's it. You have to interpret it yourself. So in my mind, what I saw was so haunting and on the screen, we just got to see Mark Hamill's just eyes, just, in shock over what he was hearing. And it, it was just, it blew me away. It was the simplest scene of just two people talking and it just fucking ripped. And well, I just was ready to stand up and, and I was like Leo DiCaprio in the once part time in Hollywood just pointing. And I was like, this is so good. The thing about Mark I, Hamill, like he's Luke Skywalker. Right. And I feel like his career has not, it didn't do him a service to be Luke Skywalker. Right. Cause that's, yeah, and- that's who he is. And that's what you see a lot of the time. And I feel like he flourished a lot in the voice acting world because you didn't see Luke Skywalker. You heard a voice. And so to see him disappear into this role as Arthur Pym as an older man, who's not necessarily as recognizable as young blonde haired Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. Sure. I think it's incredible to watch him do this. Cause it's like, it's almost like he's playing a live action version of the Joker in this, not, not from like the, the zany like way, but like the, the voice that he uses, the evil that he portrays is all there. And it's just kind of 
not something that I'm used to seeing from Mark Hamill as somebody who doesn't get to do probably as much in-person real-life acting work that he should have been able to do. Like I remember uh, when I saw The Force Awakens in theaters and there was that final shot of Mark Hamill on the mountain, how cool looking it was, but part of me just right away was like, oh no, he's, he's going to suck. He's going <laughs> to, no, not even that. I just thought he's going to be bad because I had no, I really had no faith in him as a live action actor. Cause all I saw was like the original trilogy and then him in Jay and silent Bob strike back. And that's about <laughs> it. And I was like, well, I got Luke Skywalker and I got Cockknocker. These are my frames of reference. So <laughs> what's going to happen? And then last Jedi came out and I stumbled out of the theater Initially not loving the movie, but loving his performance and thinking that was an all timer, like his whole life and career had been building to that performance. I still think it's it's unbelievable what he did uh, with that movie. But then to do something like this and like you said, kind of portray all that all that evil and all that kind of. um God, so the word I, the words eluding me that you just feel his presence when he's in the room even if he's just sitting in the corner of the boardroom he just is projecting something but then in that final scene with her when when he says like his he says like thank you for your offer but i've always i've always lived without owing anyone a debt and when he says so if it's all the same to you i think i'll play out my hand and he says it with such like heavy sadness of like he just has a trail of carnage behind him and he just has accepted that that's his life. And he knows that whatever is going to come to him is what he earned. It's the only time he's had to plead, right? Like he's never been the person who's had the, the, who hasn't been in control of the situation. Yeah. And and he he realizes that as soon as he goes to fucking, you know, wrap her up and walks away and she's still standing there. Like he knows that he's not, He's like, oh, I'm fucked here. And he basically sits down, hears her out. Like, I think, yeah. But I think there, there's almost a relief. There's a relief and kind of like a, just a sadness to him where he's, he's not he's not in control anymore. And he's kind of doesn't have to make the decision other than just, you know, and I'm just going to I'm just going to see it through. And and that's OK with me. I just thought that was awesome. Yeah. Um, well, and I think to turn it back around on Averna too, I think one of my favorite things about this show in particular is the fact that she's not just the devil, you know? Yeah. I think there's I so many, she is. there's so many readings of like, yeah, she's, she's the devil or is she God or what is she exactly? And I think the idea that like, she's not necessarily like she's certainly somebody who comes to collect souls at the very least it seems like but she's not necessarily just a plain force of evil she's she's like i don't even know it's she's, more like the grim reaper than anything yeah i mean she's, she's more certainly, like she has the power to give to give uh to give Roderick and Madeline the ability to build their fortune and and you know get away with murder until they they don't anymore um but it's it's just an interesting kind of like benevolent ish kind of you know looming godlike figure um, almost like an old like trickster god or something from like old mythology that yes. Yes. is so, not necessarily an agent of death or heaven or hell but it's I was just, just kind of there I, was, to tempt I literally humans. just 
just Googled cultural depictions of ravens, right? While we're talking about this and the symbolism of, of mythology by culture in Greco-Roman antiquity, uh, ravens are associated with Apollo, the God of prophecy. They're said to be a symbol of bad luck and were the God's messengers in the mortal world. Um, so there's that, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that's that alone is like ties to who she is and what she's doing in, in in this world, you know, like she's bringing bad luck and like, you know, uh, like like you said, like or like she's delivering the karma or the prophecy of like each of these individuals in, in their situation or whatever. But even just like ultimately, ultimately Roderick and uh, and Madeline and, are, uh, are the evil. and Madeline's like ultimately their prophecy that she had decided with them earlier on in their lives um but yeah like that's i think that's that ties it ties it all together right there in and of itself which i'm sure being greek roman greco-roman antiquity or whatever i'm sure poe probably dove headfirst into a lot of that too you know so he's pulling the same symbolism in his works from that um i did like going going back to what we were saying about who did and did not deserve their deaths. Uh, real like Perry. I don't feel like Perry really deserved his death. Mm. Um, despite that he was like a dirty little creep um, in his own way, but he didn't really do anything wrong. He was just kind of a loser who was just wanted to get laid all the time. Well, I think for, for me, his like parable is his negligence, right? Sure. Yeah. If he was listening in that meeting that he was called into, he would have known there was chemicals in that tank that he should not have. Not yeah, even he should have meeting, been paying attention afterwards. Yes. Naivety, negligence, however you want to look at it. But he didn't like really desert. I mean, that was a fucking brutal death. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. I'm sitting here like waiting for the the fucking Blade Blood Rave song to come on, <laughs> and then everybody just starts burning alive under acid, and I'm like, ah, I, I, this isn't fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't sexy. It hurts. No, no. I wanted to see a vampire hunter slaughtering people, and I got none of that. I see people melting. <laughs> That's pretty uh, pretty harsh. Yeah, it was that was I mean, that was a hell of a way to kick off the deaths in this mm. series for real. Like take out 87 something people or whatever like right off the bat, you know? Like Yeah. Uh and the, but that's the thing is like you're seeing like he there he's doing some crazy like debaucherous thing. Is debaucherous a word or debauch I know debauchery mm-hmm. is, but yeah. Um he's doing this crazy debaucherous thing with all these other people. And so you kind of bring in this like biblical sense of devil or like, you know, God like raining down upon the heathens, you know, so to speak, which ties into our symbolism of the Raven, whatever. Um, and then, uh, I don't think, um, what's, uh, Rahu Kohli's character's name. Leo. 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 Yeah. He did not deserve to die other than he was a drug addict. (laughs) Like, (laughs) And he was and he was giving drugs to other people like so well, drug addict slash dealer like and and I guess to me the whole thing I was thinking about this too because I, I know Nick you you've brought up in the discord as well that you don't feel like you think Leo is the one who who deserved it the least out of all of them and I, I don't disagree uh, or with with Perry either from you John but I think the fact of the matter is is that none of the children necessarily deserve to die. They are paying for the sins of their father, right? And of sure. Madeline. Like they they're the only reason that they are getting killed by Verna is because Roderick and and Madeline cut the deal. I think 
she gives everybody kind of the opportunity to not oh for a hundred percent she gives them all an out just yeah to me like one of the questions that i walk away with in the series is like if they didn't fall to the lure of whatever they were doing where she was also there right they had temptation would they have gotten the head tap that uh lenore gets rather than the brutal death that they all experienced right would she have been merciful to them in a way that they were not to the people that they treated poorly is kind of the question that that i walked away with a a little bit but you don't yeah because i mean because she's in the room with perry and she's like you can walk away from this like we can get out of here you know and he just keeps going with it and with camille like she was like you can leave you don't you know you shouldn't be here you shouldn't be here she said it like five or six times and then um who was next was it leo that was next Victorine, or no, uh, no, there was somebody before her. Is it when youngest to eldest? Yeah, Leo yeah, was it, next. It was, yeah. Leo was the next, so the black cat. So, like, it, he didn't have to adopt that cat. She she tried to tell him, like, no, nah, I don't really want to. And he's like, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll buy, I'll get you a whole new building. I'll adopt every single cat in the whole city or whatever. You know, and then with Victorine, um, what was the out she with her? Trying, she, like, the, the woman only wanted to do it if uh, oh, she wanted Alexander, to talk to Doctor Ruiz, yeah, right? Dr. Ruiz yeah, would do it too. Yep, yeah. And then um, with Tamerlane, what was it? What was it with Tamerlane? Um, I don't even. I can't think of Tamerlanes. I think but, she keeps seeing herself, right? I don't necessarily know. I can't remember in the in the Hall of Mirrors ish type sequence what. Like I don't know if she continued to. If I think that, tried to play yeah, with her. her story was definitely the most uh, unclear to me, <clears throat> other than I guess maybe being obsessed with self-improvement, but not actually trying to improve yourself was kind of the thing. I think that was kind of Verna's uh, objective was to tell her like, hey, you should actually focus on your life and your marriage and who you are instead of trying to help other people do yeah. that by selling them a bunch of shit and making a bunch of money. Yeah. Trying yeah. to get rich. I mean, off it's, of yeah. So it's lifestyle. all the smoke, the smoke and mirrors of like what she was as a person. Yeah. The literal and, and vanity. Yeah. Like her. Yeah. Her and the mirrors, the, the of projection herself. of all the, yeah, that's it. also, that was the coolest fucking debt. Like they spent their entire budget on that scene, man. <laughs> that was that was that was that was like because you knew you saw it coming like again you you see every single one of these deaths coming like it was it was so that was so good um i think the only one watching them click into place like you you get you get the foreshadowing you get to see all of their corpses up front in the first episode in the first yeah three minutes probably (laughs) the show like almost works backwards it's fascinating really because you get to you know up front okay these six characters all die horribly within days of each other and you see them all you get a glimpse as to what they looked like when they died and then in each of their respective episodes you get like shots of them and so you start to think okay so this person must have died from something related to this but you don't know the exact circumstances that lead to it and there's always like one thing in, in the scene in question when you you 
it clicks and you you know what's going to happen right before it happens and it's so satisfying in a way it's like it's almost like playing a game it's almost like freaking cocoon alex where you hear the musical <laughs> cue and you yes. think oh some shit's about yeah. to go down and it's the thing that it's not is it's not hot tub time machine where where you're just yeah, waiting yeah, for yeah. Him to lose his <laughs> it's not yes. just that it's literally <laughs> like I think it, it, it makes you appreciate the journey to get there so much more because it's almost kind of like, I'm going to spoil the gruesomeness for you. Let's focus on the journey to get there, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I guess the more I think about it, both Tamerlane and Frederick, neither of them really had, they weren't offered an out the more I think about it. And they are the two that are the direct descendants like they're, they're the from their blood they're not the bastards whereas like all of the other well, four blood, were all half but yeah 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 but the other the other four were all half like usher you know they were the two that were born at the time of the deal i think they were alive yeah, yeah. okay yeah enough. yeah sure they but, were they were the yeah, ones they were the ones who roderick most directly betrayed because yeah. they were already alive it was not like when that when that deal was on yeah. the table they were there and he had to think about them he, at home. He conscious he consciously didn't give a shit about them and just took yes. the deal anyways. Yeah. That makes, they, okay. Yeah. No. But they also they like I mean Frederick the is the two worst. Frederick is yeah, by Frederick far the was worst. fucking terrible. <laughs> the like, most monstrous. That, that was that was ridiculous. Yeah, Frederick. <laughs> that was that was funny. I really like that. Um, um and, and my son's name is Frederick too, so this all just is weird now. <laughs> <laughs> don't call him Frederick. you'll be okay no i won't i won't um, trust me yeah i uh i think the one of the things that i wanted to ask that i think was a lingering question for me and i it might just have been missing something in the text of the show do you guys feel like roderick made the choice to betray when when do you feel like Roderick made the choice to betray Dupin in the past? Was he was he with his sister the whole time and like we should use this as a play to take over Fortunato? Or do you feel like there was any part of him that actually wanted to do the good thing and, and take down the bad practices of the people at Fortunato? Because I think Part of the genius of casting Zach Guilford, the Boy Scout of fucking Friday Night Lights, as young Roderick, is I think you carry into this the, like, Roderick could be a good guy in this young form, and what's going to make him turn? But I think the thing that ultimately I kind of, where I fall on that question is kind of like, I think he was always with Madeline to kind of say we should we should be using this opportunity to take over Fortunato rather than giving them off to the government. But I guess what what was your guys' thought in that? Was that a question for you at all, or do you feel like it was very clear? Uh it was it was not a conscious question I had, but I, I still don't think it's particularly clear. Hmm. I think especially at that age, Roderick probably understood his role in the dynamic is just that as a man, he can open up more doors and get more opportunities, but Madeline's clearly the brains of the operation. So he probably, I do think there is goodness in him and there was, and I think that that was mostly, uh, encouraged by Annabelle Lee. Mm -hmm. But I think what DuPont showed up, I think pretty much what Roderick's MO is, is to, 
live his life and explore opportunities and then bring it to Madeline and say, what can we do with this? And she's the one who's actually going to come up with the scheme. So he probably came to the door and he probably was like, sure, I'll hear this guy out and thinks, yeah, that is true. They are bad people. And then he's got the hubris to think if we take over, we can make it right. But absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there's no way that they were going to come out of that uh, as good people. (laughs) Yeah. Or doing the right thing. And that was, uh, that ultimately, that scene where you realize what's going on in the deposition is nuts. I just thought, oh. <laughs> Fucking anger inducing of like just. Just just the betrayal and, and the look on, on Malcolm Goodwin's face mm-hmm. is so sad. Because he just, he wanted to believe. And then the two. The two, uh, him and uh, uh, Carl Lumley, Lumley yeah. who plays Dupont. Yep. I said this in the Discord too, but I'm so I love that Flanagan is not tempted to use weird prosthetics or de aging or anything other than just like a little bit of makeup and a shitty wig, maybe to make somebody look different. But he'll just cast people and be like, "This is the young one. This is the old one." <laughs> and if you're not on board, you're not on board. But yeah. like that's it. Like Zach Gilford and Bruce Greenwood look nothing alike yep. at all. But it works. Um, Bruce Greenwood was also not the original. Yeah, it casting was Frank Langella, who got, they're even more far off. We got me too during production. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, but uh, is that what happened a, with him? He's a sack of shit. Yeah, he's, oh, yeah, he's gross. He's a gross, gross old man. Was, was he hitting on Katie Siegel or what? Probably <laughs> everybody. <laughs> or, or all of them. Yeah, all of the yeah. women and maybe some of the men. Who knows? But. Right. <laughs> the stories. The stories were that the cast and crew were all relieved and grateful when he was fired from the series because (laughs) no, everyone was happy with the choice. So yes, uh, but even more so, I mean, they all, they don't look at anyway. I just think that's really cool. And I, I, and the, the the way the actors could maybe, I don't know if they worked together to try to find like a common ground to match each other. Which of our mannerisms shall we exchange in order to be these embody the same character at different periods of time? It's fascinating. Yeah, it's very, but the, very good. Dupin was a really, really good character. Both actors who played him were excellent. Uh, I fucking love Carl Lumley, and it's mostly because I watched like all of Alias with Mom when it was on TV, and he was in that show playing uh, Marcus Dixon, and he was great in that too. But uh, like the only other thing I know that I've seen him in is Falcon and the Winter Soldier, yes. and he got shortchanged in that show hard because 100%. he was so good, and he was that was a really compelling plot thread, and there wasn't enough of it, and I'm sure there won't be another season. So he's, it, it was he's what it actually was. in the film, the fourth film, the fourth Captain America film. He was cast. Oh, to well, that's kind of return cool. to reprise his role as uh, Isaiah Washington Isaiah, in yeah. Captain America: The New World Order. I think it's called. Yeah, well, let's so, see. I didn't know that. Yeah, who knows? That'd be cool. Who knows if they'll do right by? He'll probably him just die. He'll get, he'll get fridged in the first four <laughs> minutes. But <laughs> the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, totally. What did you think about my question? Of do you feel like Roderick turned, or was he always evil? I don't think he was always evil, but I think it's it's a lot of this like I want to get what's mine kind of mentality. Like the Fortunato was his, like it was his and and Madeline's, their, like their from birthright. the 
as yeah, bastards it's, of it's the- theirs to have. And and I think I think he I don't think he saw it as an opportunity to seize the company necessarily. I think um I, I think Madeline is the brains of all of it for sure. Like he he's just the the spokesperson. Like he's a good salesman, you know. Yeah. Um, that that whole that whole line about uh, what what was the line? I can't remember now. I'm so bad at this. Uh, the lemons thing. Not the lemons thing, but that was that was a good one too. Incredible there was monologue. another one. There was another one. Um, that it, it was spoken to him by uh. By oh. by, shit. duty oh, took I'm down sc- right. Yeah, uh, Griswold. Truco. Yeah, R- yeah. The the thing Rufus Griswold says to him about uh, we're the we're old, in we're in battle, battle or stations like, thing. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're yeah that I, whole I, line. And then, yeah, yeah. And then he just pulls that like at, at the family at the board table. Like he just throws all of them. Like he throws that whole line and sequence at them. Like. He's he's not the brains, but he he knows a good line when he needs it, and like he like he he's a salesperson, you know what I mean. Madeline's definitely the brains, so I think him bringing the opportunity to Madeline of like, hey, like this shit went down. This guy brought me these papers, and Madeline's like, oh, we can use this, like we can we can take this, and this is how we get the company. And I think I think that was how it went down. Um, again, okay. I don't. It's not. It's. I don't think it's a hundred percent clear. Like you know, like we all said. But I, I think that's probably how, how it, things played out. Fair. Very fair. That makes the most sense to me, at least. Yeah. No, Because I, I, I do just, think, I mean, why else was he there at the company anyway? It's like, why are they both working for that? Unless it's literally the only company in that town worth working for. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it se- they certainly seem to want to take it over. But I didn't, you know, I still think. I think Annabelle Lee's existence in the story is very much makes me question where his motivations lie. But I think in the end, like being able to make the cold calculated decision that you are going to likely kill your children before their time is up for your own theoretically theirs as well, fortune and gain, I think is morally bankrupt in a lot of ways but then to also continue to keep fathering children <laughs> like uh, uh madeline's line to him at the end once again another incredible performance mm-hmm. and that entire monologue of of like you know i i got my my tubes tied or whatever like i got an iud and you can you just couldn't stop having children you know fucking everything that yeah. moves or whatever she says um really just goes to like I, I i don't never in a million years could i imagine making the choice to be like i will i will sacrifice my children's lives and their livelihood you know like they'll they'll enjoy being rich for half of their life you know that they could have or whatever and that'll be good enough like i i i it all feels bad and and roderick being willing to make that choice while there are children who are in his life that he knows he's consigning to likely some sort of terrible fate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just, I like, I think Annabelle Lee is, is just like meant to be the polar opposite of Madeline in a way, you know, like yeah. Madeline is a representation of like Roderick's true nature. And Annabelle Lee is like, you know, his, uh, the optimism. 
yeah, like this, this, I, is it like, well, she's optimistic that he is not a piece of shit, but he's actually a Turns piece of shit, is. you know? Yeah. Like Even, she's a symbolism of, of his, his own, um, you know, uh, hiding like who he is as a person. Well, the, the moment between them and the church, cause she appears to him and how you, once their conversation is over, she starts walking towards the children. You see that her head has a bullet wound in the back of it. Just very understated, like not even called. I to. completely fucking missed that. But it's very much like she probably took her own life due to yep. the fact that he kind of stole the children away from her with his money. I um, was going to say that was the only part of the only piece of gore in the show that felt. Uh, that was really shocking in terms of uh, who it happened to and, and what what it meant. Yeah, and it's that's the thing. And yeah, it's, that was a that was a great reveal. My fucking just, mind is blown. I can't <laughs> believe I completely. I got to go rewatch that whole fucking episode now, man. It's really understated, and I think it's that's what's kind of masterful about Flanagan. That's, One of that's the many a, things yeah, that's a Flanagan. That's a total. Him. That's a he Flanagan did again. He did it again <laughs> to me. Those little subtleties of of thing, the the little bits of horror and gore that he sprinkles in in order to keep me like juicing on his stuff. I I can't even like for sure. Man, he's so but like you so said, good. Alex, at the beginning. It it's not even so much that it's gory, but it's just like really disturbing for sure. Because it's not it's not about the it's not about the flesh and blood of the wound. It's about what it means. Yep. Yep. And she delivered That's- some some line to him, and then she turned around and walked away and. There's a combination of seeing that and then Bruce Greenwood's reaction shot mm-hmm. when you realize or when he kind of is expressing the regret over. Yeah, know, the, and just the like times. the sad, the sadness in her face and everything. Like, I mean, she who was that? Ch- that was her. Uh, where's her name? Katie, Katie Parker. What else has she done? Because she was. In Hill she was, House. was she? Yeah, she was uh, Poppy. I think her name was. She was like the flapper ghost that was living in the house. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's what's up. I recognized her from Hill House, but I don't, I don't know if she was in any, any of the other stuff. Yeah, she was, she was good though. Like that was a good, she, she was, was great. Oh, she had a solid a performance. performance. Yeah. hundred percent. I really think it. that they're, they're rewatching it. There might be a turning point for, uh, Roderick and if I think if it's anything it probably is something Griswold does to him like humiliates him in some regard um, but I think that I don't think he's fully formed yet and because I think you got Madeline on one shoulder and you got Annabelle Lee on the other mm-hmm. and you got these two angel and a devil talking to him at the same time and he's kind of in this position of like he could go either way like he's got a he's got an amazing wife and kids and like they're they don't have much but they're getting by and they love each other and the sister who's always talking to him about their, their potential and what they should be theirs. And, you know, the, what if the, what if the, what if, and, uh, I bet there's something in one of the scenes. Cause Griswold is a piece of shit clearly, but he does kind of say, if you stick by me and you'll climb the ladder and it's almost kind of the same sin in a way as Prospero. I mean, all the sins kind of derive from Roderick. It's the whole sins of the father thing. Right. But mm-hmm. Prospero, it's the same way where he's young and he wants to jump ahead too fast. He's, he doesn't have any life experience under his belt. He doesn't know what it means to make these kind of big decisions and have to live with the consequences. Like he, 
just wants to leap right to power and live large and not think about what that means either. And, uh, man, I'd love to go back now and think about all the individual kids. And cause Roderick even had a line at one point where he's like, they're all a lot like me, but in ways, so-and-so is the most like me for certain reasons and that, but, uh, yeah, I bet there's a moment in there that would kind of clue you in. Yeah. I, um, well, and I almost wouldn't be surprised if there isn't too, because I think, <clears throat> the evilness of Roderick is so great that it's almost more disturbing to think about how much he is not being truthful to Annabelle Lee in the, all of the sweet moments that they show you of their relationship, you know, and the reciting of the poem and all of that stuff, I think almost kind of builds to the point of like, here's the terribleness of Roderick Usher. Not only did he, not only is he responsible for the deaths of countless people in the future that impresses Verna, but also he, you know, quite literally never lived the truth to the people that were closest to him, mm -hmm. um, other than maybe Madeline, you know. But Yeah, that's true. It's anyway, uh it's fascinating. There's yeah. so much to talk about. I don't know if there's anything else in particular that we want to call out. I feel like there's there's like very there's a lot that we could dive deep on with this particular show, but I don't necessarily know that I No, I'm I'm uh I'm glad I didn't know more Poe going into it because once I saw the episode names and I was clicking because I had my brother and I had a collected Poe stories book when we were young and I knew that in ways Poe was credited with kind of coming up with like the fictional detective like mastermind. Yeah Dupin um, Dupin is like the prototypical detective mastermind ahead of yeah. like, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle is definitely directly, uh, Sherlock Holmes's creation is a direct answer to that. Like yes. that wouldn't exist without, without Poe and, and, uh, murders in the room org. And so when, I, when we were starting the show and I was so excited by all this, I was so tempted to go on a big, uh, binge okay. of research and not even reading the story is just kind of being able to connect the dots. But then I was like, I want to watch the show without knowing as much because I feel like I'll enjoy it more, but I would love to. That's why when I posed the question in the discord and I said, is anyone here a hardcore Poe boy? Cause I wanted to know what the, what the takeaway was from someone who was a big Poe fan. And Bruce was the only one who weighed in a uh, patron. Bruce said he was, and he loved it. He was super into it. So I, I would love to, it'd be like the inverse when, when, if, when Flanagan gets to do his dark tower adaptation, I will be, all in on that. Yeah, I um, think but, um I think it's one of those things where it's like I I have a hard time thinking with something so archetypal as Poe, like so like high up on the hierarchy of like descended things that have come from him. I think it'd be really hard to be persnickety about the details of Poe's works in an adaptation like this. You know? And so, yeah, someone will find a way, though. Yeah, that's true, but but I think I do think it's it's <clears throat> having. I don't know. It's just inspired by. You know what I mean? Like it's not like anybody who like everything's derivative of everything else. Like you, like people who are going to get upset that it's not Poe enough or or whatever. Like I, I I'm not. Yeah, that's stupid. That's the thing. Like, I don't I don't mean to invent like somebody who's not happy with the the faithfulness to poe in this particular adaptation i think going back to what nick said of like the audacity of like i'm going to weave together the greatest hits of poe in one big story that is also 
a Poe story is pretty impressive. And the fact that, like, John, you and I can watch the show and not clue into the fact that the titles are Poe stories. Like, the Rue Morgue thing and the fact that it's, like, Roderick Usher... Uh, yeah. They kind of back backronym it into being a Roderick Usher acronym is, like he weaved it together so well that yeah. it's kind of it's very impressive the gold bug thing gold bug is absolutely a brand there's a lifestyle brand named gold bug somewhere like it's that's probably happening so i think it's it's really flanagan's mind is fascinating in in that he's able to make these connections and do those things and and weave all of this together into something big i do feel like some of the prose that makes its appearance in the show feels very ham-fisted in a lot of ways, but it's intentional because that's kind of the way that Poe works of just like, I'm going to hit you with the blunt words of my poetry. And- well, and that's, that's the thing is like, this is one of the things David Chen spoke about was how like, uh, like Poe wasn't like when, when he wasn't doing the horror stuff, so to speak, or the, you know, off-putting poetic, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his poetry wasn't great. (laughs) Otherwise, like it was very like, 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 you know, almost like childlike in rhyme. sort of, so to speak. Um, so like when the Annabelle Lee lines come in, like they're kind of cheesy. Cause like, it's a cheesy moment between like him and his wife. Like, that kind of ham fistedness, I suppose I did want to mention, uh, cause you're talking about like the audacity of, of blending these two things together that have nothing to do with each other, so to speak, uh, or, or whatever, uh, funny story time. When I was in college, I took a, an English, it was like English two fiction and reading and writing class. And, uh, it was taught by this old man who probably was born the same time Edgar Allan Poe was, because that's how old this dude was. Um, I can't remember his name, but he was, he has since has become one of my favorite instructors. He's probably no longer with us. So RIP pours them out. But he, uh, we, we had to read a lot of fiction in this class because that was the whole point is it's fiction, reading and writing. And he had us reading all of these stories and like trying to understand the symbolism that's written in all of them. And for the end of the class, our final paper was for us to take two completely unrelated works of fiction that have nothing to do with each other and create symbolism that binds them together that is built off of the criticisms from the critics of both pieces of work and it was one one of the most fun and enjoyable papers i ever wrote but two i was the only person in the class who passed because i actually understood what he was trying to do with the paper and I'll have to see if I can find it. And, and I can't remember both of this. I, I I was like comparing a Sylvia Plath story and like something else that had nothing. They had nothing to do with each other, but to like to to take two things that are completely unrelated and like create this bind between them uh, was was super enjoyable. And I can only imagine that uh, Mike Flanagan like just sat down and was like this is I've got this idea and just like let it rip and like had so much fun writing this all out regardless of what anybody else thinks about it like he probably had a blast and then to see it come to life and be able to do this with all of his favorite people 
Like this was probably an amazing experience for him, well, especially because I, I think it, this is his last Netflix thing too. Yes, and then he's yep. moving to, is he moving to Hulu or Amazon? Amazon. Yeah. So this is his last, I'm sure like that's another thing David Chen kept calling out is like, Oh, I think he just kind of, you know, he was just phoning it in for this one so he could get it out, out of the book so he can yeah, just I, uh, move on to the next thing. Like, had to get out of that Netflix contract. And I'm like, this is like, you're not phoning anything in with this. This is a fantastic, this, this whole story I, I and everything I was could, amazing. I wish I could phone it in this well. Yeah. Let me, let like- me phone this in. <laughs> Give me a fucking break, man. Like I, like I phoned in that paper in college. Like I, no fucking way. That took me two weeks to write that paper straight. I was working on it every single night after work and school for two weeks straight. And I had to have my, one of my English major friends like proofread that shit to make sure that I, I was doing the right thing. Like, but yeah, it's, it, you can't, you, nobody's phoning this in, man. This is awesome. Like it was like, I I'm sitting here like while you guys are talking, I'm also like trying to pull up, like, where can I download like every single Edgar Allan Poe audio book story so I can start listening to them at work? Like, you know, um, yeah, there, there is a whole book by Poe. I don't know if yeah is it a book yeah it's a novel a complete novel written in 1838 is uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket is the only complete novel by American writer Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. So uh, those are all and, short stories or anthology things, right? The work relates to the tale relates the tale of the young Arthur Gordon Pym who stows away aboard a whaling ship called the Grampus, which was Lenore's nickname for mm-hmm. Roderick Grampus. Uh, various adventures and misadventures befall Pym, including a shipwreck, mutiny, and cannibalism before he is saved by the crew of the Jane Guy. Aboard this vessel, Pym and sailor named Dirk Peters continue their adventure further south, docking on land, encounter hostile black-skinned natives before they're escaping back to the ocean. The novel ends abruptly as Pym and Peters continue forward to the South Pole. Blah, blah, blah. Anyways, I thought that was really cool when I came across that while we're talking. Um, but yeah, just... Uh, I don't know where I was going with all that. I just petering out. Oh, I, I just, cause I want to read all the stories now. I want to, I want to read all the stories and the poems and I want to tie it all to the show. I like when a show does these things to me where it makes me want to learn more about the source material. Yeah. That to me is a, is a successful show. For sure. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to be able to go back through too. And like, like Nick, you were saying, not knowing the stories, but then doing a rewatch where you understand more about them and being able to tease a little bit more out of it would be cool. Um, real quick, Flanagan rankings. Number one for me, Midnight Mass, hands down. Number two, Hill House. Number three, Bly Manor. Number four, House of Usher. Number five, Midnight Club. That's where I would stand. And Midnight Mass to me, <sighs> fuck, dude, incredible. <laughs> like that, that being his own whole, like that's of all of those, that is the only one that is his sole creation, not based on uh, mm-hmm. another work. And I think it's his best, but that's, you know, it's the one of, I want to rewatch the most. A lot of personal feelings tied up in that one. I want to rewatch all of them because I know how much, Nick, you like Bly Manor. And I feel like it felt less than ha- uh, Hill House to me because I liked Hill House so much. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I deserve it deserves another watch because I I want I, I it it's hard to follow up Hill House honestly in my oh, opinion. Yeah. But it's like an impossible task. Yeah. 
I, I like I loaded them all up in my Netflix queue to like start watching them again. And I almost hit play the other day and I was like, no, I'm going to scare myself. I just shouldn't do this right now. <laughs> I, you know, I was, was going to start with Hill House and then work my way down the line again. So, yeah, we started rewatching Hill House. I think we got to episode six and then we just kind of lost steam. Uh, I haven't seen Midnight Club, so I'm going to just put that at number five or leave it off. I think. I am sorry. That's my timer telling me I need to stop. Um, I think I'm Bly Hill House, probably Midnight Mass, and then Usher. I don't know. It's hard. I do really have to rewatch Midnight Mass. Those are all number one, right? One point one, one point two, one point. No, I'm I'm a I'm a Bly apologist, and I I don't know why. Uh, I mean, I think if you're, if it's not anybody's favorite, that's totally fine. But it got, there were a lot of people that just like, this one sucked. I, yeah. I don't understand. I didn't I'm think it's, saying, it's, it, it, it I'm comes to number any, any of you guys, but yeah. it's number four for me. I don't think it sucked, um, but it, it didn't have the same effect on me that Hill House had. Oh yeah, I agree. I think they're different. Like Hill House had, like I had a very emotional reaction to Hill House yeah. and especially the ending, like, yep. and just, in Hill House, the first episode, man, it ends on such a fucking jump scare banger. Like, my God, like, it's yep. so good. Hill, it gives me I chills think, just thinking about it. The unifying theme, I think, across all of Flanagan's work for me is is kind of tragedy, but also that a lot of beauty and ultimately humanity can be found in tragedy. And uh, I think that's persistent across all his work to varying degrees. And I, I thought the great the amazing reveal in Hill house that all along, it's really just been a, a big tragedy that befell this family. And when you get to re you get to see through from a different perspective, the opening sequence of Hill house. And you realize that the mom is just trying to catch the family and she's not like possessed. Cause when you first see Carla Gugino limping down the hallway and shit, it's the scariest shit ever. Yeah. But then you realize she's just injured and she's like pleading for them to wait for her. But it's just because she wants to be rescued. You realize it's like the saddest thing ever. <laughs> and then the whole series is just so sad. I mean, I think the bent neck lady is the all time greatest Mike Flanagan achievement. It is, it's everything you want. It's, it's, it's amazing. But then I think the nature of the tragedy for me and Bly is, um, is almost one of sacrifice, like ultimately. And I, I don't remember any of the characters names except for Owen, cause I'm really bad with names, but, uh, the main girl, uh, who's the nanny when she basically, uh, sacrifices herself so that everybody else can go on and live and like the woman that she loves. And there's, there's a lot about leaving your tragic past behind you. It was like her fiance who died in the car crash and the visual of that guy with the glasses that are the headlights throughout those first few episodes. You don't know what's going on. Uh, the ghost that comes out of the lake every night and just, Oh man, flies just really, really good. And I love the, the multiple, uh, timelines that are kind of happening there's yeah. like hill house is hill house has two obviously but it's about the same people and in bly there's like layers to it where it's kind of about some of the same people but some of the different people i think some of bly is a little bit sloppy at the end but the owen and um what is tania miller's character's name in that miss uh uh, I have to look it up now because uh, Hannah Gross. Yes, Ms. Gross, Gross. Hannah Gross. That relationship and that episode, um, where you realize what's going on with Mrs. Gross, is just 
unbelievable. I think it's just so, so, so good. And that scene between them at the fireside is so sweet. And it's just, man, I just think Bly is so good. They're all so good. That's the stupid all, thing. Yeah, you can't pick. That's the thing. They're all incredible. So They are. Watch yeah. Mike Flanagan's work if you haven't. If you listen to this without doing that, you just really did yourself a major disservice. Yeah, but, shame on you. Uh, <laughs> but go you, watch them anyway. I mean, watch them in order. I think it's important because, at least for me, because uh, we were talking with some family members and somebody was like, oh, I'll just skip all of them and go right to House of Usher. And I was like, I said, you can, but then it's not as fun because you don't, you don't know as much about why Mike Flanagan is casting certain people in certain roles. Like when you know his ensemble and you get to see who they're playing, you get it. And I, I, I think that's, I think that's cool to watch them grow with him and watch the filmography develop with them and with him kind of together. Cause it's really like a partnership and it's, uh, there's, I think it's beautiful. That's, that's the thing is him, him getting to the point where he's writing for people to give them an opportunity that they maybe wouldn't get based upon their previous work, I think is, is really beautiful in a lot of ways. Um, but yes, it's, I, I think the Wes Anderson of horror is a very worthy title for, for Mike Flanagan. Before we go, Nick, do you have any thoughts on the life of Chuck? Do you know anything about that King story? I don't know anything about it. I think Mike Flanagan uh, adapting as much King as he wants is a good idea. Um, I think it's interesting that they are making it despite the ongoing strikes. Uh, Apparently they got got an agreement, a SAG after interim agreement in October to start filming like now they did because they ended up, uh, securing funds independently so now it is mm. it is an independent movie now and it was not before interesting so mike flanagan uh tweeted out a big thread about it and said that their producers were able to work together to basically make this a fully funded independent movie now so they're not beholden to any studios who would be the ones that are essentially screwing over cast and crew so yeah. now they're able to make it uh because of that and whether they a studio steps in midway through production. If agreements are reached or whatever, it remains to be seen. But I think that's pretty admirable that he, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, but I, I think it's admirable that he's able to find a way to keep him and his people working because I've been watching, I follow a lot of his regulars, uh, on various socials and it's funny watching them go kind of stir crazy and be like, we're not allowed to promote house of usher. Yeah. Not allowed to promote anything. We can't even dress as characters for Halloween. Yeah. So we're all kind of losing our minds collectively. And uh, I don't know. I just think it's cool that he's like, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to find a way to keep working. And I think that's uh, it's impressive. Have you seen there's this a, cast there's list? a really there's a really check. funny SNL bit. There was a really funny SNL bit about the costume thing, like not being able to dress as characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was on this this past weekend's uh, SNL. Nice with uh, Nate. Nate Bargatze was yeah. the host. Yeah, he's he's too good. Anyways, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, do you want to hear this cast list real quick, Nick? Yeah, I was about to look it up. Tom Hiddleston <clears throat> uh, playing the titular Chuck. Uh, Mark Hamill, Chiwetilla Ejiofor, Karen Gillan, excellent. Mia Sarah of Ferris Bueller's fame. Wow. Uh, Matthew Lillard, excellent. Karanka Kilcher. Oh, beautiful. David Desmalkian. Of, what uh, uh, what a perfect fit! <laughs> of the Suicide Squad, yes. 
Uh, Kate Siegel, of course. Carl Lumley uh, from House of Usher. Samantha Sloyan, who played uh, Tamerlane in House of mm-hmm. Usher. Rahul Kohli, of course, who played Leo. Of course. Uh, Michael Truco, who played uh, Rufus Griswold. Um, and Heather Langenkamp was in um, was in uh, Midnight Club with him as well. Um, so uh, most known for her role in The Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, incredible casts. And of course. Yeah, I need to. This is the thing. I always finish these uh, these Flanagan shows, and I'm like, man, I wish there was another one. There are so many movies of his that I have not seen because I have only seen Hush. So I need to go back and watch all of them. Uh, and and uh, you definitely watch Doctor Sleep. Yeah, yeah, yep. You and McGregor. Yes, please. But you should. Have you ever seen The Shining? Uh, a while ago, yeah, but I, I would, I would, I should do a rewatch to actually. Yeah, you, I, I recommend. I I rewatched it uh, before watching Doctor Sleep just because I was curious, and uh, yeah, I I recommend that. I think it was cool. All right, I'll have to do that. I'll have to do that. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Thank Let's, you both yes. for appearing Usher on this, this episode along. of Confessions, an Usher podcast. <laughs> and uh we will see you on the next one peace